Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now nearing, or almost at, the end of our second season, and we continue to be just as excited as ever to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we talk about environmental justice. What is it? Why it's important? And why it's important to everyone and why everyone not only should care, but must care. And we are very excited about this. This overlaps also with what we like to call the equal justice or social justice of climate change. It has been very exciting to hear almost daily on the airwaves, television, radio, as well as in newspapers, daily the attention to and the attribution to climate change as it relates to many of the current events in our society, such as the fires in the West and the hurricanes in the coastal areas, which we'll get to later. So what is environmental justice? Environmental justice, as defined by the EPA, is the just and fair treatment and the meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and the enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Fair treatment, according to their definition, means that no population bears a disproportionate share of negative environmental consequences resulting from industrial or municipal and commercial operations or from the execution of federal, state, and local laws, regulations, and policies. It also relates to the meaningful involvement with decision makers that's required in order to access the table where the decisions are made and to the ability of all communities to make informed decisions for themselves and about their future. Environmental justice is an important part of our societal struggle to maintain a clean and healthful environment, especially for those who have traditionally lived, worked, and played closest to the sources of pollution, or should I say, the sources of the unhealthiness. We've also got the environmental justice movement, which has taken on a lot of issues as of late particularly last year as a COVID pandemic began to take its toll, as well as with the emergence of Black Lives Matter and many of the other issues surrounding those two. But the environmental justice movement is primarily, in the past anyway, been championed primarily by African Americans, Latinos, Asians, and Pacific Islanders, and Native Americans. The environmental justice movement addresses a very important statistical fact, 
and that is people who live, work, and play in America's most polluted environments are most commonly people of color and poor. Environmental justice advocates have shown that this is no accident. They say that communities of color, again, which are often poor, are routinely targeted to host facilities that have negative environmental impacts. Examples of these are like landfills, dirty industrial plants, or truck depots. These statistics also provide clear evidence of what the movement rightly calls environmental racism. Communities of color have been battling this injustice for decades. Environmental justice is also based on the reality that these groups, as well as some others, do bear that unequal environmental and economic burden, like poor air quality and poor water quality, as well as many other unhealthy living conditions resulting from the operations of public and private facilities. It's the idea that all people and communities have the right to equal environmental protection under the law and the right to live, work, and play in communities that are safe, that are healthy, and that are free of life-threatening communities. Environmental justice is made possible when all communities have access to information and access to the decision makers that enable them to take action and create positive change for themselves. While there is no single, clear-cut, universally accepted legal definition for environmental justice, and the concept continues to evolve, there are shared themes of equal protection, community involvement, and healthy living environments. And according to the EPA, environmental justice is increasingly spreading beyond what have been the typical communities. Many grassroots environmental justice organizations have formed since the dump trucks first rolled into Afton, North Carolina, more than 20 years ago, and that community had to rise up in arms. Today, according to the Natural Resources Defense Council, many of these groups have become strong and permanent forces for environmental protection and social change in their communities. For example, the Concerned Citizens of South Central Los Angeles, which is a housing and community development corporation that helped to lead the fight against the now infamous Lancer incinerator in the late 80s, provides leadership on environmental issues and a range of other social justice issues to not only South Central LA, but all of Los Angeles. Another example is the West Harlem Environmental Action Group, which was created in 1998 to fight the siting of the North River Sewage Treatment Plant, and it has gone on to spearhead action on many other environmental problems in New York City as well as the entire state. And there are many others. Environmental justice can actually trace its roots back to the civil rights movement and many of the social justice events in the early 60s, such as when Latino farm workers in California organized and fought for workplace rights and health safety, or when African-American students in Houston protested a city garbage dump in their community, as well as some other fights in Harlem. These events laid the foundation for the protests that we talked about earlier in North Carolina, when the people there were protesting the dump trucks rolling into their community. As they say, necessity is the mother of invention. And so that has been the case with many of the environmental movements. But the good news is 
one environmental movement or one group or one effective group of environmental activists beget many others, as well as many NGAs that develop and are well-funded to pursue the science-based and the statistical data that many of these grassroots neighborhood-based organizations need to make the changes that they've been able to bring about. The environmental justice movement has broadened, though, the perspective of the environment well beyond the original scopes of conservation and preservation of natural resources. And again, move to include work, play, learn, and the places we pray, as well as to cover jobs and many other ancillary services. The environmental justice movement is now an intergenerational, increasingly being led by our youth. It's a multiracial and an international movement that promotes environmental, economic, and social justice by recognizing the direct link between economic, environmental, and health issues. They are inextricably connected. In fact, on our next program, we're going to look very specifically at the economics of environmental justice, which, of course, we believe is helping to fuel the increasingly spreading recognition that it's not just the typical and vulnerable communities. Increasingly, everyone is vulnerable to a lot of the environmental issues that the low-income and minority communities have been typically burdened by in the past. Environmental justice also refers to cultural norms and cultural values, rules, regulations, behaviors, policies, and, of course, decisions to support sustainability. It refers to a situation where all people can hold with confidence that their community, as well as their natural environment, is safe and productive. Environmental justice is realized when all people can realize their highest potential without being interrupted by environmental racism or the inequities. It is supported by decent-paying jobs, secure jobs, quality schools and quality recreation, as well as decent housing and adequate health care, as well as democratic decision-making. It cuts a broad swath. And the community of environmental justice is one in which both cultural as well as biological diversity are respected. And it's one where there's equal access to institutions and ample resources to grow and prosper. Before we look at some other environmental justice exemplary projects that really help to grow the field, we're going to go ahead and go to break now, and we want to give a shout-out to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas community. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. 
and our other sponsors, Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body and non-mercury. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to today's show, Unscripted, on environmental justice. What is it? Why we should care? Why we must care? And how it affects everyone. Before the break, we were giving a lot of the definitions of environmental justice and the environmental justice movement. All of us are very, very busy, and all of us have plates that are overflowing, our saucers are overflowing, our cups are overflowing, our glasses are overflowing. And so we are all anxious to move whatever we can off of our plate. And so very often when we are told that certain issues are primarily applicable to certain classes or a vulnerable class, or like in the case of COVID, when initially it was more targeted toward elderly, then that meant, oh, we can push that off of our plates and move on to more important things. But we're finding out increasingly that's not the case. This world, the economy, society is inextricably connected. What affects one affects the other. While the effect may not be realized today, it may be realized tomorrow, next week, next year. But increasingly, the distance between the time of the initial act and the time that others or everyone or you are affected by it, that time is decreasing daily because of the interconnectedness of our world. And such is the case with environmental justice issues. Again, as we talked about a lot as we tried to define it in the first segment, there are vulnerable communities, and they primarily in the past have been people of color, low income, and children. And again, that is beginning to change a lot with climate change. At this show, we like to say the social equity of climate change because it affects everyone. It is an equal opportunity thing. Now, different people have different responses. The aftermath may be different, but it affects everyone. And such, again, is the case with environmental justice. So let's talk for just a minute about the difference between environmental justice and social equity. Social justice aims to ensure fair treatment for individuals and groups. And environmental justice is primarily concerned with the positive as well as negative effects that different environmental factors can have on communities and individuals. There can be environmental advantages as well as disadvantages. The concept of social equity, again, sometimes interchangeably used or referred to as environmental justice, is the fair and equal treatment of all people and communities, as we talked about a lot earlier, regardless as to race, gender, national origin, or income level in terms of developing, implementing, and enforcing environmental laws, regulations, and policies. And social equity often addresses the unequal distribution of resources, such as the unequal distribution of clean air or the unequal distribution of clean water or water at all, the unequal distribution of housing in public spaces or green spaces and trees, 
And in climate adaptation, the higher vulnerability and risk of damage from storms of some populations is an issue of social equity because of how the levees are built or where they're built or not built and where they're associated or situated and where the trees are and where the streets are built. Additionally, the exclusion of people or groups from full participation in making decisions about climate adaptation based on their income, neighborhood, or social status is a social equity issue. It's an issue, though, of growing importance. Let me give you an example. Let's say you live in a neighborhood and your neighborhood consists of four streets. And there's a big public meeting as to some drainage in your neighborhood. And so they pass out flyers on three of those streets, but your street didn't receive a flyer, so you never know that there's going to be a meeting about where the drainage is going to be situated. So jump ahead a couple of years, and the drainage is built. And because your street was not represented, no one knew that your street is already flooding. And as a result of this new drainage system for which your street had no input, your house now receives about an inch of water inside when it rains. Totally unintended consequence, all due to the fact that you had no input. That is a very small example, but that's happening and has happened in the past over and over again, helping to drive many of the environmental justice issues that we see today. And it's very important that as we plan for a more resilient future in our world, in our culture, that all society has equal opportunity to participate in those decisions. And that's what social justice is about. And so both social and environmental justice are sensitive to power issues. For example, who causes pollution and then who suffers from the pollution? They both focus on communities or groups rather than individuals. And they tend to adopt a holistic approach to analyzing and addressing problems as well as reforms and solutions to those problems. Now, environmental justice is commonly used to include aspects of social justice. Again, although sometimes social and environmental goals really may be in conflict. That environmental justice movement emerged in the United States in the 1970s and was growing strong in the 1980s when many environmental pressure groups formed to fight the injustice, the disproportionate bearing of environmental burdens by some in society. A typical example was the Love Canal disaster in New York City. But nowadays, environmental justice or environmental equality, as we like to say, is a much more widely accepted as a fundamental concept and a goal of many environmental policies. Environmental justice has been particularly relevant, though, in the area of urban green space in four areas, and that is the siting of industrial facilities and their impacts on local residents. It is almost a given in almost every locale across this country that there have to be public hearings or zoning hearings or opportunities for communities to comment and hopefully stop, if it's not a good thing, when industrial facilities and plants are proposed to be built in their communities. Another area is access to environmental benefits and services in socially and economically disadvantaged areas, as well as restoration of contaminated industrial sites 
as well as the inclusion of local residents and stakeholders' views in planning and development issues, similar to what we discussed earlier. I want to talk now about the intersection with environmental justice and social equity as it relates to a lot of the issues and things that we're seeing on our television every day. A lot of those also go to or deal with the environmental health perspective of environmental issues. And so from environmental health science perspective, it's very, very important that we have a clear and workable definition so that questions of environmental justice or environmental injustice can be looked at with a science-based lens as well as tested. And so a very practical definition for environmental justice from that perspective is going to deal with issues of how is fairness, how is equity, how is it defined in terms of the procedure, what is the scope of the concern, what sources and hazards and over what area are we going to look at, and how is unfairness or inequity characterized and that what individuals or groups are the focus of concern. In other words, is there a certain individual group attribute, such as race, ethnicity, lower income status, that are shared by the people who are systematically and involuntarily suffering a disproportionate of something? And then what is the likely root of unfairness or injustice? That is, are the disparities we see when we look at these situations caused by intentional discrimination, by political expediency, which is often the case, or by utilitarian policies or decisions, or by neighborhood transitions. The critical point here is not that any particular definition or way to look at this is correct, but rather in choosing a definition or a viewpoint that has direct ramifications as to how we evaluate environmental justice policies and decisions. Within the field of environmental health sciences, the issue of environmental justice is usually framed in terms of health risk, where the primary goal is to identify and evaluate those populations and individuals at higher comparative risk so that, if necessary, the appropriate mitigating actions can be taken. Groups that are deemed to be potentially greater at risk when they're exposed to environmental stressors above some health-related benchmark or when they're more biologically susceptible to stressor-linked efforts are the ones that we want to look at. And those who are both more exposed and more susceptible are likely to be at highest relative risk. And these are instances like with COVID, when we're seeing the incidence of COVID higher among elderly, but more so among low-income minority populations. And that goes back to things like where they're employed, like service workers. And we know that service workers are exposed to more people, and they're on the front lines. And so we saw that, and everyone experienced that. And we think that we've moved that whole ball in terms of environmental justice a lot further just living through this COVID pandemic. When people have seen and experienced how they may not be part of that vulnerable population, but they are indeed just as affected. Moving that forward to today, we see how when we're in the midst of our second or maybe it's our third COVID wave, how 
much of the population has been vaccinated, but now even that vaccinated population who may not be getting COVID are still being affected because they may not be able to get into hospitals for surgery, for other care, because the hospitals are filled with COVID patients. Again, a very pointed example of how we are interconnected and that why we must all care and why we're all affected by the issues of the vulnerable population. We want to talk, though, about probably the two issues that we're seeing all alone, but first we're going to go to break. And after the break, we'll talk more about the wildfires and the hurricanes. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. Today's show on environmental justice, what is it, why everyone must care, and how it affects everyone, as well as its relationship to the social equity of climate change. And this is unscripted. Before the break, we were talking a little about the health effects of environmental justice. But we want to now move on to putting environmental justice in the framework of the two climate-related issues that we are seeing daily, and that is our wildfires in the West and the hurricanes and the flooding in the East. I think I mentioned earlier, it is very encouraging for folks like us here at Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, as well as our partners, the scientists, the researchers, and the environmental-related organizations that we work with. It's very encouraging for us to daily, several times a day, clearly hear the wildfires in the West being attributed to climate change, as well as the issues with the hurricanes and flooding in our coastal regions being attributed to climate change. That's important that people are constantly hearing that to know that and to understand that. It's important because, number one, all of these issues and more of them are going to, as we see, become increasingly more prevalent. We're seeing that the wildfires are becoming bigger every year and many times during the wildfire season, which is expanding, by the way. We're hearing that this is the biggest fire. You know, We thought last week was the biggest. Similar thing happening with the hurricanes. I believe that the Hurricane Ida was bigger than the last known big one, and that was uh, Katrina. And with hurricanes, even though we are strengthening our systems, they are still getting so big that it's becoming increasingly difficult or unimaginable as to how we prepare for them and build our resilience against them. But again, these natural disasters, in any natural disaster, has environmental justice and social equity implications in that very often, especially in the past, it has been those vulnerable populations that have received the brunt of the burden. But that, too, is increasingly changing. The wildfires do not necessarily go to the low-income or neighborhoods or the neighborhoods where the people of color live and said, ah, we're going to start here. They're going everywhere. They're equal opportunity. The same thing when the hurricanes come on shore. In many cases, though, they are ancillary, perhaps historical issues, perhaps unintended issues that create a bigger burden 
for the vulnerable populations. But again, that is constantly changing. Globally, environmental disasters impact billions of people, and they cost trillions of dollars in damage, and their impacts, again, are felt most acutely by those vulnerable populations. Wildfire in the U.S. have similarly outsized impacts on these vulnerable communities. Record-setting wildfires have torched huge swaths of our western states in 2020, and in 2021, each one continues to get bigger and bigger. They have blotted out the sun. They have produced hazardous air pollution in cities far from the blazes and sent toxic smoke wafting clear across the country and beyond. And these far-reaching effects are no longer aberrations. Stanford scholars wrote in research they published recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the number of homes at direct risk from wildfires and the investment in firefighting resources to protect them is on the rise. Nearly 50 million homes in the U.S. now sit in what they call the wildland-urban interface. This is where houses are close to forests and highly combustible vegetation, according to the authors of this report. Moreover, being in close proximity to trees, bushes, and wilderness, which typically is a good thing to be close to nature, but even that is no longer a prerequisite for suffering the impacts from the wildfires. Marshall Burke, an associate professor at Earth Systems Science at Stanford University's School of Earth Energy Environmental Sciences, and his colleagues estimate that wildfires have accounted nationwide for one quarter of the toxic fine particle pollution, or particulate matter, as they call it, PM. And that's up from 10% a decade ago, and it accounts for about half of all pollution in parts of the Western United States. Burke and his team say climate change is the primary driver of these changes. Climate change is the primary driver of the wildfires. And this particular climate impact is one that we need to pay more attention to. It used to be years ago that you had this wildfire season, and that seems to be spreading. Every year, it becomes longer and longer, just like every year the hurricanes become stronger and stronger. The societal burden of wildfires growing for three main reasons, Burke says. The first is a century of fire suppression, that is, putting out fires as fast as we can, which has led to a buildup of the unburnt fuel. The second reason is the growing human encroachment onto the wildfire-prone areas, and in particular, a large increase in the construction of homes in the wildland-urban interface, and that is those urban tree areas that are on the edges of the forest we discussed earlier. And then the third and final reason, and probably the most important driver, again, is climate change. And that is from dried out forest, kill trees, and it's made all of this much more flammable. And each of these trends has been decades in the making. But the extreme heat and drought driven by climate change in recent years in the United States have greatly, greatly accelerated fire activity through the Western United States. 
And it's clear, and I think everybody understands it. If they didn't understand it before, you hear it every day on television when they tell us the wildfires are caused by climate change. And that is the heat dries out the trees in these wildlife areas, the forest. The extreme heat dries them out. The extreme heat does not allow for moisture to be in the air. And they turn into kindling. A spark of anything causes that fire. And because there's so much dried weeds and trees and there's so little precipitation, they go on and on and on and turn into the vast wildfires that we are seeing now. Burke and his team say that the burden of wildfire in many ways is shared more broadly, perhaps, than other environmental harms. They found that minority and lower income populations are, if anything, probably less exposed on the average to wildfire smoke across the U.S. than white and higher income populations, at least in terms of the outdoor smoke exposure. And work by their colleagues has shown that government expenditure on firefighting is not regressive and really tends to favor low-income rural areas. But what we do need to worry about is the disparities in how outdoor smoke gets into inside of our homes and how different groups are able to protect themselves from the smoke exposure. Therein is when a lot of the environmental justice issues come to play. And this is an area of very active research right now to look at these environmental justice implications. So as we mentioned, wildfire smoke does impact a broad swath of the population. It does not discriminate rich from poor or by race. But again, the acute conditions associated, the health conditions associated with the smoke exposure do appear to be disproportionately evident in these subpopulations that have pre-existing conditions due to air pollution-related exposure. And many of these are the same populations that have those pre-existing conditions that aid and abet them being overburdened by COVID. For example, low-income kids in the southern San Joaquin Valley have a very high asthma rate due to chronic poor air quality. And so when a wildfire event occurs, like some of those we're seeing right now, then the evidence suggests that those kids are disproportionately likely to end up in the ER because of their pre-existing conditions. Ditto with COVID. They've already got high asthma rates due to chronic poor air quality, then COVID is going to exacerbate that. Scientists also are beginning to get a much clearer picture of how wildfire activity contributes to local as well as distant air pollution. And that distant air pollution is an equal opportunity issue. Again, the basic picture is not great at all. Wildfire smoke travels long, long distances and it often crosses borders. That contribution it makes to air pollution worsens many health outcomes. But again, the issue is most important probably is the indoor. Americans spend approximately 90% of their time indoors. And so many populations are living in those much draftier homes than others. We have questions to answer like, does it help to wear a mask? And what other things do we need to do to try to reduce that risk? Do indoor air filters work? And how much is the prescribed burning working? How much should be done? And what should we do? So there's a lot to be looked at with that. 
We're going to go ahead and go to break now. And when we come back from the break, we're going to look at the other big elephant in the environmental scene right now that we hear about every day, and that is hurricanes and flooding. And so now we want to give a shout out to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body and non-mercury, specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to the last segment on today's show on environmental justice. What is it? Why we should care and why we must care and the interface with the social equity of climate change. And before the break, we were talking about environmental justice issues related to the wildfires in the West. And now we want to move on to the other elephant in the environmental justice room, and that is the hurricanes and the floods that we're currently seeing in our coastal areas in the South right now. But that has moved on to upstate New York, so we will just say that coastal areas. You know, for the past decade, we have seen some of the worst cases of flooding due to natural disasters, as well as the resulting leaching of some of the most hazardous environmental contaminants back into nearby communities and waterways. And often that leaching was occurring in low-income minority populated communities. Natural disasters typically are not great equalizers when it comes to recovery. They are equalizers when it comes to who and where they rain down on, but not when it comes to recovery. That often is the Achilles heel. Lower income communities and lower income individuals are more likely to live in neighborhoods that are more susceptible to flooding and that are near industrial areas and hazardous waste sites that may become compromised due to the flooding, as we saw in Hurricane Harvey recently with some of the oil refineries. And I'm sure we're going to hear more and more of this in New York due to some of the flooding there, as well as some of the flooding we've seen in Louisiana recently as well. There is also a very serious inequity when it comes to access to recovery based on average income levels of neighborhoods. More affluent people, it has been seen, are relocating out of flood zones, or they have the income to raise their homes. While housing prices decline and poor families move out, and oftentimes the poor families are not able to move out. And these trends will continue, all while federal resources are often not enough to sustain or even rebuild areas most in need and those 
in power are not doing much, it appears, to address disaster prevention. A recent study that we saw that came to the fore, I believe, last week, was that they're also showing that affluent areas tend to access FEMA and many of the other federal disaster assistance funds at a higher rate than many of the typically vulnerable communities. A lot of that is due to representation and access. We're also experiencing stronger and stronger hurricanes on the Gulf Coast and on the eastern seaboard, which scientists have shown unequivocally is due to climate change. In the past two years, we've seen storms that created flooding of biblical proportion in Texas and North Carolina, in addition to the typical coastal states, and yet these states continue to build in areas known to flood for the sake of economic development and terrorism. And they do so with very little regard to the scientific consensus of the impending impact of hurricanes and flooding on coastal areas of the country. And so as cities assess the modifications that they need to build resilience to their zoning, land use, and real estate development policies and procedure, it's critical that they acknowledge the climate science. However inconvenient it might be, and that they take measures to address disaster preparedness, particularly helping the most vulnerable communities. And instead of waiting for changes to federal environmental laws, scientists have been really encouraging that states, their legislators, and city planners should be planning and executing rules acknowledging climate data all alone. And so we're going to see much more of this because hurricane season is at its height now, and we don't know how many more we'll see this season. And then we don't even have time to begin to talk about tornadoes that tend to hit us here in North Texas and others along what we like to call Tornado Alley. Those two are becoming more detrimental, larger, and more frequent. But the other thing I want to talk before we get to the end of the segment is the intersection of environmental justice with our COVID pandemic. For more than a year and a half, the COVID pandemic has highlighted the disproportionate impacts of environmental harms on communities of color, a lot of which we talked about in earlier segments. During the pandemic, Black and Latinx individuals were almost three times more likely to be hospitalized and nearly twice as likely to die from COVID-19 as compared to the white counterpart. And this is due to multiple factors, including unequal access to health care, inadequate or overcrowded housing, and inability to work from home. But one very major factor has been exposure to air pollution. And it plays a significant role in these disparities. Exposure to particulate matter, or PM, that we talked about earlier, is an extremely dangerous pollutant and can lead to premature death from heart and lung disease. It can lead to aggravated asthma, decreased lung functioning, and difficulty breathing. And this has been linked to the higher mortality rates due to COVID-19. The side effects of particulate matter exposure overlap directly with COVID-19 risk factors identified by the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and they represent a stunning example of how health outcomes are affected by environmental inequities. 
The COVID-19 pandemic has made it very clear that communities are paying the price of poor air quality, and it's past time, really, for the United States to provide adequate funding and investments to reel in a lot of these disparate effects of environmental harms in our community. It's also time that we realize that this is moving quickly and rapidly moving beyond the vulnerable communities. The smokes from the wildfires in the West are coming all the way over to the East Coast. And that particulate matter that they put into the air is polluting the air for all of us, those that are not just close to the pollution. Again, they're the brunt because they've got many other things that are polluting their air, but it's hurting all of us and thus increasing the susceptibility and the results of COVID in all of us. We are all inextricably connected, just as the environment and our health is inextricably connected. So what's happening in other parts of the world? Well, the major environmental problems globally, and perhaps worse in many cases, many places, most places, other than here at home in the U.S., are air pollution, global warming, ozone layer depletion, acid rain, natural resource pollution, overpopulation, waste disposal, deforestation, and loss of biodiversity. A big issue contributing to environmental justice issues in other parts of the globe is land degradation. That is the deterioration or loss of the productive capacity of soils for present and future use. And this is a global challenge that affects everybody. Again, not us so much yet, but everybody. And it affects everyone through food insecurity, higher food prices, climate change, environmental hazards, and the loss of biodiversity and ecosystem services. Another thing that we're seeing that scientists as well as sociologists are beginning to connect the dots for us is the presence and the increase of environmental migration. As certain parts of our globe and parts of our world become uninhabitable because of the heat or people begin to flood out because the land is not workable, it would not produce food, and they don't have food to feed their families, they leave and they move to other countries. Many feel that this is perhaps the genesis of a lot of the nationalism that we're seeing politically. But irrespective, we're going to see more and more and more of this. A lot of the island nations, as global temperature rises, their sea level rises, their landmass begins to decrease, they're not able to subsist or make a living off of their fishing industries, they're going to pick up and move to other places and become climate immigrants. We are seeing it, more and more of it. And I expect that in the near future, we'll see that clearly attributable to climate change as we are seeing daily in the news as it relates to wildfires and a lot of our extreme weather events. So what can everyday people do in their everyday lives to help drive solutions? That is the question we always ask on Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. Too often people think, 
that this is not applicable to them. Again, it's only that vulnerable population and they aren't a part of it. Hopefully we have shown through some of this discussion over this last hour that we're all vulnerable. And if we're not directly vulnerable, those who are vulnerable contribute to our livelihood and in other ways make us vulnerable in ways like perhaps taking up hospital beds due to their illnesses, where then we cannot get in the hospital for other things that come up with our health. So we're all interconnected. But what we can do is take those small steps every day toward preserving our resources that cannot be replicated. But another important thing that everyone can do is to talk about this. Talk about how we're having extreme weather events and connect the dots for each other about what those extreme weather events cause, like flooding, droughts, wildfires, hurricanes, and tornadoes. This is a lot, and we will continue to explore more on environmental justice, and we're going to look at next week the economic issues of environmental justice. So join us again next week. Thank you. And thank you, audience, for listening in to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your homes, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourself. And each of them can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening in today. Hopefully you've been made smarter. We'll see you again next week.